welcome to the Artist Appeals. This is Erin Sparler, and I'm your host. In the Artist Appeals, we interview artists, crafters, photographers, and business professionals about the business of art. I hope you'll join us and enjoy the show. Perhaps you've heard that the fine art gallery system is dead or dying, and that you can't make a living selling fine art in galleries. In this episode of The Artist Appeals, I'm going to introduce you to a gentleman who is a fine art photographer. His work is collected and featured in 10 galleries on the East Coast. He left a prominent job in his 50s to start doing fine art photography full-time. Now his work has been collected by interior designers as well as a famous country rock singer who we cannot disclose. Big hush-hush secret. So this gentleman is making a go of it. His work illustrates several books. In fact, he has a forthcoming book in July. By the time you hear this, it may already be out. So if you don't think that you can make money in the gallery system, this gentleman has some great tips and tricks on working with the galleries as well as locating them. Without further ado, please allow me to introduce you to the amazing and awesome Jeffrey Stoner. Hello, Jeffrey. Good evening, Erin. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you uh, faring this pandemic of 2020? Ugh. Well, it, it certainly makes life interesting. There's no doubt about that. So. Doesn't it? But we can, we can connect on the podcast. We can connect virtually. I think this is going to change everything. Yeah, we we definitely have space. Social distancing. <laughs> yes. I think this is really going to be interesting to see the way this changes or increases the amount of virtual connectivity. Right. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. So, Jeffrey, what do you create? What is your niche? What is your art form? Tell us. Tell us a little bit about what you do. <laughs> sure. Well, I am, I am a photographer, and yeah, you know, we can talk about how I got to where I am now, if you'd like, at some point. But sure. my my main focus right now is animals. Mm-hmm. Primarily a series of goats that I started in two thousand and eight, mm-hmm. and steam locomotives. So it's oh. kind of a an odd combination. <laughs> goats and trains. Yes, there was a a show I did in. In Roanoke, Virginia, uh-huh. the gallery there, and they said, uh-huh. "Come up with a clever title." And I was like, "Steel wool." <laughs> so <laughs> that's clever. I like that. <laughs> you know, when we talked before, you told me a great story about how you almost didn't photograph these goats. I love that story, especially since it connects and resonates with me. Since I have a Pyrenees, do you want to share it? Sure, absolutely. Well, I was um, primarily photographing landscapes at that time. Had just the year previously, we uprooted ourselves from Pennsylvania and moved to Tennessee. We jokingly say we loaded up the truck and moved to Tennessee. Mm. And then about a year in, my wife was reading the newspaper and read about a botany project that was going to be taking place, or I guess actually was taking place at that moment, on top of a mountain called Roan, R-O-A-N, Mountain. Mm-hmm. And Roan Mountain, uh, the tops of this mountain cool are name. about a, a, a mile in elevation high. Mm. And for whatever reason, the tops of these mountains have what are called balds. So there's, mm-hmm. there's areas with the top of the mountain where no trees grow. Right. And they've been grazed for hundreds of years, these mountaintops. Uh-huh. But the National Forest Service took over that area in the, in the 50s and then stopped all grazing. Uh-huh. And what happened over time is that invasive plant species started coming in. So you had like Canadian blackberry and, and, and other plants yeah. invading upon the the, uh, the mountaintop. Making the balds not so bald. <laughs> exactly. Yes. <laughs> What's funny is the trees trees don't grow though, which is really interesting. Yeah. But there was a theory actually that one theory was that the Native Americans had burned the mountaintop so they could plant and just all kinds of wild theories. So a, a botanist in the 1930s decided he was going to, I guess, maybe prove it wrong. Uh-huh. So he, he planted um, some Norfolk pines and they uh-huh. grew. He, he planted the seeds. 
And there was a stand of Norfolk pines that grew. But the seeds that dropped from them, the pine cones, never germinated. Mm. So you had that stand of pines, and that's nothing and nothing else. So mm. there, like I said, there's a lot of theories, but you still have this, you know, problem of the invasive plant species. Mm-hmm. So the botany project was uh, designed to bring in a herd of angora goats mm-hmm. and let the goats graze at, at the top of the mountain, and they set up a solar-powered electric fence to protect them. Mm-hmm. And it was at about an acre to two acres that they would fence. Mm-hmm. And then as the goats grazed that, they would then move the fence and map then all the different plots that the goats grazed. Mm-hmm. And the idea being that over time, they would then be able to determine if you were going to use the goats as a natural way to, to clear those bulbs, how often would you need to graze that area? Is it every year, every three years? Mm-hmm. How effective was it, et cetera? So my wife suggested that I go up there and I assured her I would. And then probably two weeks later, she suggested again. <laughs> and you and had I it. I assured her I would. <laughs> and I meant to. And then finally the third time, I'm like, okay. So I had photographed at the top of the mountain. There's wonderful sunrises there. So that, well, yeah. you know, if I get up real early and then I hike the Appalachian Trail, you know, before dawn, I can get up to the mountaintop and then at least get a, a sunrise. Okay. So I got up there and I did Because you were that. doing landscapes. Right. Absolutely. So I thought, you know, it wouldn't be a wasted trip. landscapes, Jeffrey, were your landscapes doing well for you? They were selling. And I would probably at that point have said they were selling well. Okay. But they didn't compare to what happened after the goats came alive. <laughs> So uh, I hiked there, and then I hiked probably another mile up to this bald mm-hmm. called Jane Bald, where the goats were hanging out. Yeah. So I, you know, I was, I was photographing them and photographed them in groups and did some close-ups, and then I, you know, hiked back. Yeah. And then started looking at them uh, once I got back home and put them on my computer. And then uh, I was attracted to primarily the close-ups of the goats, so kind of like yeah. goat portraits. <laughs> Goats so are I, fascinating I had, creatures. Yes, they are. So I printed the initial pieces in color and it, it yeah. just didn't work. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of green there and it just seemed like the green was overpowering the goat. Too poppy. And so, Yep. And then I thought, well, I would uh, convert them to black and, to black and white. Mm-hmm. And it was close. And then I decided to try sepia toning the black mm-hmm. and white. And I thought, aha, I like that. Mm-hmm. So, I, so I printed a couple of them, put them over in the room where my wife has her quilting room. Mm-hmm. And then it was probably like a day or so later, she brought them back over to where I'm working. And she goes, these make me smile. Mm. And I thought, you know, they, they make me smile too. Yeah. So I so I initially introduced them uh, to a local gallery, mm-hmm. and they um, immediately started to sell. Wow. So that was 2008, and I've been photographing goats ever since. So every <laughs> every goat season, I'm out there photographing goats, and <laughs> and that and that project came to an end. You know, the ten year project I think ended after eight or nine years. Oh. And well, they 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 had the the data they needed, and then the the Forest Service. It was a new person in charge of the region, and they were making the paperwork a lot more difficult. So they mm-hmm. just decided that they had enough data to to produce their scientific studies, and they did. Yeah. So at that point, then you I lost your continued. Goat subjects. <laughs> well, partially. I mean, I I was able to. Most of the goats came from one farm mm-hmm. in Shady Valley, Tennessee. And the owner of the goats and the farm let me come there and photograph them. Mm, oh, fabulous. Yeah. And then I was also re- was looking out, uh, reaching out for other goat air, you know, other goat farms and other regions. Uh-huh. And then found a, a goat farm in Barnardsville, North Carolina, mm. that I've been photographing there the last several years. Mm-hmm. And, and she's, she's actually a lot of fun. It's called Good Vibrations Goat Farm. Oh, do they do goat yoga? <laughs> well, she doesn't do that, but she <laughs> she breeds the goats, and then she's got a combination of white angora and black angora, and I think Ooh. there's even some red angora. Ooh! So the, she has them shorn twice a mm-hmm. year, and then she's come up with her own 
formulation for dyes that she uses. So she then oh, dyes cool. the wool and then she makes things from the wool. Yeah. And also teaches other people how to do that. So it's kind of like, you know, goat to goat to sweater farming. So. <laughs> no, that's fantastic. She's got multiple revenue streams. That's really brilliant. You mentioned that you had moved from Pennsylvania to Tennessee and um, you did this to pursue a photography career. Do you want to just talk about that for a second about why, how, what <laughs> was the impetus? Why did you do such a thing? It's a crazy, beautiful dream. And you're I'd always love. Yes, I'd always loved photography. I remember just as a little kid, my parents had this old camera. It was an old mm -hmm. brownie camera that had a, a blue flash bulb. And when they pressed the shutter, this flash bulb would basically explode. And as a little kid, I was like, "Ooh, that sounds cool." <laughs> <laughs> that pop. So then I was like, let, "Yeah, let me take the pictures." And like, rarely was I allowed. But I got a my first camera. I think I was ten when I got my first camera. Uh -huh. But I remember the first time that I wanted to take a picture, you know, kind of like on my own and not for an event, was I was eight years old and we had moved from the city to the country and it was an ice storm mm. the, the night before. And in the morning, I looked out and the sun was glistening and I, I walked out there and I'm looking up in this, into this tree with the glistening branches and I thought, I want to take a picture of that. Mm. So neat. You can remember your first photograph. I can't believe that. That's Absolutely. cool. Absolutely. And then when I was 10, I got my own camera and it just, uh -huh. you know, always had an interest in it. Yeah. And then it was, I think it around 2003, maybe. Mm -hmm. I was living in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania at the time. And there were a couple of guys that started a website and it was called Beyond Second. And I the idea it. was that, yeah, the idea was that you could upload any picture you wanted to to the website, but it had to be within the municipal boundaries of Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Yeah. And then I, I, you know, I had some pictures and put them on. And then I thought, well, how many pictures can you take of Harrisburg, Pennsylvania? Yeah. Now, for those that don't know Harrisburg, it's, it's, you've got a river that's like a mile wide. There's bridges and islands and I mean, there's a lot of material. Yeah. But it's but, a small but I was also, city. It is. And I was also starting to see some other people and what they were doing. And that kind of drove my creativity. So I was trying to come up with all kinds of new ideas and angles and things. Mm -hmm. And then in 2004, um, my, the phone rang and I answered it. And a gallery asked me, would you consider showing your work in our gallery? Nice. And I, there was, I'm sure there was dead silence on my end. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, ab absolutely. Sure. <laughs> I will bring you a port. I will bring you a portfolio. And I was thinking, uh, you know, <laughs> I want to make sure that they actually are, you know, talking to the right person. And <laughs> so I go over there, and I had this portfolio, and I, I probably had thirty images in this thing. Yeah, and they kind of flipped through it, and were, it seemed like a little aggravated. And they're like, "Yes, this is what we want." I'm like, "Okay." <laughs> would Would you like to see your wall space? I'm like, "Sure." Uh -huh. well, it, it, at the time, I was working in a you know in the corporate world and in, in the healthcare corporate world, and was used to doing board meetings and that kind of stuff. So I thought I could you know act cool. Well, they showed me this space that was about eighteen feet long, uh -huh. and I'm nodding my head, thinking I'm cool, going yeah, that that that's fine. But apparently, all the color drained from my face, and I turned white. And they're like, <laughs> "Is that too much space?" I'm like, "No, not at all. It's perfect." <laughs> I didn't have a clue. I ran to Ben Franklin. I'm buying frames and mat board and you know just everything I could think of. And then I, I, you know, I took it over to them. Then they hung it and it started to sell. Trial like, by well, fire. Yeah. So well, isn't this interesting? So then I got in another couple galleries and did some gallery shows and actually started teaching a photography course at the Harrisburg Art Association. Mm -hmm. But, you know, this, this job that I had, which really was a dream job, the owners of the company were the best owners I've ever worked for in my life. Mm. And what we did is we did business turnarounds. So if a retirement community or assisted living facility was in trouble, we'd be asked to come in and, and fix them. So, you know, we would mostly fix them without ever changing one single employee. So just mm. different methods, wow. different training. Uh, we also helped People build brand new facilities, help design them. And I mean, I mm -hmm. loved it. Yeah. And, uh, but it involved a lot of travel. Mm -hmm. So as these galleries started to grow, 
I took it as far as I could take it. And it was just bugging me. I thought I'd really, really like to see where this could go. How many galleries were you in? I think three at that time. All local, all in Harrisburg? All in in that region, you know, Harrisburg, New Cumberland, in that area. And how many pieces were you selling like a month or? I I really, that's a good question. Probably not a ton. Yeah, probably 30 or so. That's really good. I mean, considering for three galleries. That's that's pretty good sounding to me. Yep. <laughs> and, and the shows actually did well. I, I did one at the city government center and did one on fireworks in, in Harrisburg. Uh-huh. And that that's quite a few had sold there. Yeah. But, you know, so I'm looking at that thinking I'd like to do it. And then my wife's like, well, you know, we could give it a try. You know, we're not getting younger. And I'm like, yeah, but this is a really good job. And, and then it was where. And I just, I just didn't think that Harrisburg was the place. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had vacationed uh, around the Smoky Mountains and, and in the Western North Carolina, mm-hmm. and it just seemed like that would be the place. Mm. So we d- did a lot of research on the area, looking at the the area of Tennessee, Virginia, North Carolina. Mm-hmm. The states all kind of come together in, in Western North Carolina, and thought that's the place to be. At least we think. But I had a good job. My wife had a good job. All our family was in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. My kids were in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. They were grown by then, but still. Yeah. Yeah, that's a hell of a leap. We made the decision. So we we actually bought a house down here in September of 2006. Uh Uh-huh. My wife got down here. She left her really good job. She got down here in January of 2007. Uh Uh-huh. Then I hung around in Pennsylvania to our household. Uh Uh-huh. So I, I left there in April of 2007 and... As I said earlier, we loaded up the truck and moved to Tennessee. That's amazing. Did your kids like, were they like, are you having some kind of midlife crisis? <laughs> are you crazy? <laughs> You're leaving your good jobs to do photography in Tennessee? What? <laughs> <laughs> they, they, I mean, they seemed, they seemed okay by it. I mean, I think somewhat <laughs> shocked, but, and, you know, probably the person that took it with the worst was my mother because we were, we were really close <laughs> with her and Aww, um, yeah. we did all kinds of stuff with her. Yeah, but you know, and so we ended up down here, and then it was like, well, you got to make a brand new portfolio of work, right? Because all your work was Harrisburg related, right? Yes, it was. I had a I had a, f- a few pieces that that would work here, and actually they sold here. I had I was doing some pieces on metal uh, mm-hmm. in Harrisburg, so I took that to a little local frame shop and just said, "Could you think of?" a creative way that I could do framing on these just to make them different. And then, you know, she's talking to me and she was looking at some of the things I had and she's like, would you be interested in letting me show your work here? I'm like, okay, sure. And it was just this little frame shop, but she sold, oh my gosh. And, And the way she sold, which is kind of interesting is that she, every story I told her about what went behind the picture, she remembered And then when people would come in and ask her about the picture, she would tell them the story behind it and she would sell them. So it was sort of something that I I picked up on because every, every image I sell today, there's the story is on the back of that image. Uh Uh-huh. Take note, folks. Here (laughs) is a gem right there. It's the story that sells. So, so the goats then, you know, they came up about a year later and, you know, gradually was doing goats. And then as as my gallery business expanded and the goats expanded, it, it ended up that the goats really were the biggest sellers. Wow. What do you think that is? Just because the the story behind them and the personality? I think it's the personality. I think it goes back to what my wife said is that they make her smile. Yeah. I just actually had somebody order um, pieces yesterday. And they were going up to Great Falls, Virginia. Mm-hmm. And you know, I thanked her for the order and said I'd be getting them out today. Mm-hmm. And then she said, "I, I, I, I just love them." She said, it, it, "They make you realize that you shouldn't take yourself too seriously." Mm. Other people look at them and they say, "Every time they walk by them in their home, it makes them smile." Yeah. So it's just that I, it's somehow the the connection, the joy. I, I, I will say that I was unbelievably lucky and, and grateful that I had that lucky experience. Yeah, that I found a niche that that took off, that that went well. Well, I don't think it's just luck, though. In that, you know, you really did a great job of transitioning or pivoting and being open to that. 
you know, and you pursued it to its fullest extent. You said earlier that you connected with the the farmers that had the goats and continued photographing them in other locations. And we didn't even talk about the Pyrenees with them. You know, I love the one where the Pyrenees is laying on the rock and the goat is kind of butting heads with him, <laughs> with the dog, the big white dog. And there's just such a connection there. There's some kind of um, connection going on between the two of them or that you read into it. So I love the fact that you found that niche. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. The, I, the first goat Pyrenees image I took, there was, you know, they were actually very difficult to, to photograph. Uh, oh, yeah? Because when they would go into an area, let's say it's two acres of vegetation. Well, you know, there was times I went and never saw a goat other than a flash of white in amongst the vegetation. Oh. So the, the first time I actually got a really good image of the goat and the dog is there was a clearing. And I stood at that clearing for 45 minutes just praying that a goat would wander in. <laughs> well, this mom and this baby kind of wandered over. And then the mom stopped. And then the baby walked up to the Pyrenees. Aww. And the baby looked at the Pyrenees and was like nose to nose with the Pyrenees, turned around, went behind him and crawled up, climbed up on his back. <laughs> um, so I've got, I've got this image where the Pyrenees turns his head and, and looks at the goat that's got two paws up on his back or two hooves on his back. And then the, 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 they're looking at each other. Ugh. And it's just like, that was like, and I remember thinking the at moment. the time because because I had an image I had taken in the Smokies of a bear, and I'm like, this is great. But then when you actually got it back, you could tell there was a little blur to it because uh -huh. it was actually just at sunrise and there was no light. But mm -hmm. here I'm like, this looks perfect. And, um, you know, I came, came you know, racing back to the house and I'm like, please be in focus. Please be in focus. And it was <laughs> luckily. It was like, gotta but be you, sharp, know, you man. just don't know. Yep. Yeah, it's got to be super sharp. But that connection, that moment. And the fact that you waited 45 minutes for it, that is fantastic. And I think one of the lessons, though, too, is just that, yeah. you know, you know, I guess one of my recommendations to artists is listen to what people are telling you. Yes. So it took me three weeks to listen to my wife. But there was also a time when I was <laughs> up there on the mountain. And I mean, it was a at that time I was actually photographing the rhododendron. There's like uh -huh. acres of rhododendron there in the spring. Yeah, beautiful. And this guy comes walking through. It was freezing cold up there. And this guy comes walking through and we struck up a conversation and he was saying he was a photographer. I'm like, oh, it's neat. He said, you should go to this place called Grayson Highlands. There's wild ponies on the mountaintops there. And right now oh. they're giving birth and there's babies. I'm like, yeah, to myself, I'm like, thank you. And to myself, I'm like, yeah, sure. <laughs> it's one of those tales that somebody's just pulling your leg. Yeah. So it took me a year to actually go and find that there were a herd of 120 ponies a mile high in the mountains of Virginia um, no with babies. And, and I actually had a, a series of those that I had, you know, sold pretty well. Uh -huh. But it was like, but to listen to those voices that are telling you things, because it's just, yeah. it's amazing how many times if you listen to that voice, it'll lead you somewhere good. Yeah, I think you really do. I think that's a great tip. Um, one of our other interviews with Ashley of uh, Sir DeBell, she makes custom lip balms and she infuses them with wine or coffee or different flavors from wineries, coffee roasteries, distilleries. And she did that research and she listened to people and their feedback on what they loved. And it's, it's a whole amazing niche that she does, but without having listened to what people were telling her worked or didn't work. She might just be another lip balm company, you know? That's fascinating. That's really fascinating. Oh, yeah. She has a neat interview in season one. Um, so, you know, we're talking about your art and your niche, and we've talked a little bit about product, but I wanted to touch on, as a photographer, what kind of products can you make from photography? We know you can do limited edition prints, and you mentioned that you do some metal prints. But what else do you do with these to encourage and provide people with options? Sure. Um, I, I do have the prints, um, also do them on canvas mm -hmm. and do them on metal. Just recently experimented with acrylic. Oh. Pro probably not going to go that route. But like transparent acrylic. So like the print yes. is kind of luminescent. Yes. Uh, it kind of has the same feel of as a piece on metal. 
Mm-hmm. I guess if I could drop back, I originally, my first thought with the canvas, I'm not sure when that would have been, maybe 2009, mm-hmm. I thought the goats could be interesting on canvas. So I, I was making 10 by 10 goat canvases and they were selling. 10 inches by 10 inches or 10 feet by 10 feet? No, no, 10, <laughs> 10 inches by 10 inches. What I've been trying to do, and I know we're jumping around a little bit, but I, I try to give various price points. Right. So that someone that's just starting out and wanting to buy some art can do it, and someone that wants to buy a huge piece for their home can do it. So I, yeah. I like to be able to show that whole range. Mm-hmm. But one of the one of the things that I was doing here was it led me here was the tourism idea. Mm-hmm. And so it took me a while with the gallery world was to try to fine tune how to pick galleries and where to have the galleries. Mm. And we can talk about that if you'd like. But the Definitely. one of the things that you you have is tour with the tourism is while people will buy pieces and have them shipped, a lot of times they like to take them with them. Mm-hmm. So then I also introduced these little six by six and five by seven canvases. Mm-hmm. And was finding that, you know, people on the, you know, on their trips, they can, they can buy three or four of those things and throw them in a suitcase or one and, you mm-hmm. know, be on their way. Yeah. So that was one of the things that led me to the, to that canvas world. Impulse buys or, you know, instant gratification. I know you also said at one point that you liked the Moo cards because you could do prints on lots of little moo cards and they could collect them and kind of remind themselves. Yeah. 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 With moo, you can, I think it's have up to 50 different images on your business card. Mm-hmm. And right now I think I have usually in the twenties. So I'll, I'll have, you know, um, some goats on them. I, the goats kind of led to other animals. So I'll have, you know, some of them with sheep and horses and mm-hmm. then I also got in um, a couple of years ago, I got into steam engines. And so I'll have some with steam engines on them. Mm-hmm. And what I found is that helps to connect people to your art also. And mm-hmm. they take them with them and keep them because they're pretty. And mm-hmm. don't just have you know your name on them. And that's led to quite a bit of sales. Mm. Yeah, you've always got to have good marketing materials available, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I'm trying to organize all this information that I've been collecting in the podcast through this acronym, Appeals, Art, Product presentation, and then educate. And what I mean by educate is not educating you, the artist, but educating your audience. And you talked a little bit earlier about how um, you've got a story on the back of every piece nowadays. How did that come to be? And what do you think the hardest part of educating your audience to the benefits of your work is? Like, what are some of the methods that you use to? Yeah, that's, that's interesting. I I remember I used to put a little card on the back of of the pieces when I was in Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. And it was, I think, shortly after I moved here that I expanded that a little bit. And then probably a year after I moved to Tennessee, I started putting eight and a half by 11, you know, sheets of paper enclosed in plastic on the back of these. Oh. And I, and I don't I don't know what it led you know, what led me to that other than I think the idea that you know that original gallery was talking about she would tell the stories and then I'm thinking well I need to tell the story too. Yeah. So you actually buy plastic sleeves from like Staples or something? Actually clear bags. Okay. Clearbags.com so I get the sleeves okay. from them. Uh-huh. And these you know the 8 and a half by 11 sheet of paper goes in the sleeve. Um I put it on the back of the piece with uh two little glue dots that are removable glue dots. Uh-huh. So that when people are looking at the canvases or the prints, they can flip them over and, you know, read about it. Mhm. And see if that if that moves them or not. Yeah, and that goes on the back of every single piece. Every piece. And do you um put the same right up next to the pieces on the wall on the display? I don't. Um, there's times, because uh, I don't, there's only one gallery that I can really control what, what the space looks like. Mm. So you're really leaving that up to the galleries. Mm-hmm. Many of them, I'll, I have like a single sheet of paper that talks about the goats and a little bit of background on me. And a lot of times they'll hang that. Mm-hmm. But what I'm really hoping they'll do is to pick up a print and turn it over and see what it says. They can see the pieces on the wall then too and, and kind of relate those two. Yeah. The the one gallery I was saying that 
you know, I can control it. There's a, in, in talking about artists that have an interest in getting into galleries, I, I don't normally recommend them getting into the galleries where they're required to pay rent mm. or rent slash commission. Cause a lot of times a gallery can live off the rent and then they're not mm. as focused on selling your work. Uh, well, this gallery in, in Asheville, North Carolina, the, the rent is, is rather steep. Um, the commission is relatively low at 19%, mm. but it's like probably one of the most perfect galleries there is. Um, the, the foot traffic's amazing. The sales there are amazing. But what it does is you have this 10 by 10 area. So for me, it's almost my, my laboratory. So oh. I, I hang the pieces there. I've got like on the left side of this gallery space, I've got the train images that I sell. Mm-hmm. Um, from the center over are all the goats and animal images I sell. Mm-hmm. So I'll put a piece up and I'll see if something, you know, if that moves people, if that starts to sell, I'll hang a piece on, you know, a big canvas piece up. And does that, does that piece hanging on the wall, does that move the smaller canvas pieces and prints? And it does. Mm. And it's really fascinating. So if I switch out a, you know, like a large goat canvas on the wall, mm-hmm. I find that that new piece that people are buying the, the prints and the smart canvases of that if they're not buying the big canvas. So it's really interesting as a a test market. And how do you track that? So you say it has perfect uh, foot traffic. Like how did you notice the foot traffic and how do you record and track that the larger piece drives the smaller pieces sales? Like how do you track all that? How do you know? Well, in with, with the gallery itself, um, Asheville is, is pretty much an art mecca. Mm-hmm. Uh, people come from all over the country, specifically all over the Southeast, but there's people, Chicago and California and stuff from people that have visited there. Oh, cool. And so people come there for art and they come there then to hike in the, in the mountains and go to the Smokies and that type mm-hmm. of thing. Mm-hmm. And I spent, well, when I, when I try to find a new gallery, I, I first pick the city that I think makes some sense. And then I go through a process of trying to choose which galleries to look at. But Asheville was difficult. I mean, I'd been here for, oh my gosh, I'll bet seven, eight years until I found, I found an Asheville gal- gallery I liked. Because mm-hmm. I go I go into the galleries as a customer, mm-hmm. usually like business casual look, you know, not too fancy, not too down. Mm-hmm. And just see how they treat me. You know, do they greet you? Do they over-greet? Do they under-greet? Do they say hi and then look down at their phones? <laughs> <laughs> it, and it, it was one gallery finally that I thought, this one works. Uh-huh. Well, then you have to apply to that gallery. And because the gallery is so popular, when they finally chose me, it was, I think, a six-month wait to even get a spot in there. Wow. And then you start at the lower level. There's two levels. One's a downstairs level in the basement, kind of. Mm-hmm. You start there with a lower rent, and then if you sell well, they'll and a space opens upstairs, then they ask you if you want to move up. Mm-hmm. But what there's a number of factors there. Number one, uh, you've got street traffic that flows by the front of the building. Mm-hmm. So that's to me that's huge. I mean, you can have a gallery that's kind of cool out in the country, but people aren't going to accidentally stumble upon it. Mm-hmm. So there's restaurants, uh, the, the Asheville Convention Center is a block and a half away. Uh, there's a bookstore, believe it or not, still a bookstore that's doing well there that's a block away. So you've got this whole convergence of art galleries, restaurants, retail shops, and foot traffic, lots and lots of foot traffic. Mm. Um, so when I, would, when I was in there, you know, as a customer the first time, I'm looking around going, there's a lot of people in here. Yeah. And it's just tons of people and tons of people that are buying art. So some are there to buy it on purpose. Others are just happen to wander by and see stuff in the window that interests them and they come in. Yeah. That's really fantastic. It's been my goal with all these interviews, all the research I've been doing, my whole academic career, to figure out how to make money with your art. And I imagine that that's probably what you're trying to do too, right? We all want to do something that we love for a living. Yeah? Totally. Who wouldn't? Who wants a dead-end job? So, after all this research and all these interviews, I've discovered four secrets. The four top secrets to making money with your art. And now, I have 
a 12-page report outlining the four top secrets to making money with your art. You can download this guide for free at howtomakemoneywithyourart.com. That's right, I got that domain name. So just head on over to howtomakemoneywithyourart.com, all spelled out, no numbers, and get your free report on how to make money with your art. How do you get the word out? You know, you're, you've, you've, identified galleries and places that you like to work with based on foot traffic and on the sales of the the owners and the staff and, and all that good stuff. But do you do collection of emails from people? How do you store and reach out to your collectors? How do you save their information and, and automate and amplify that so that you have your own list and you're not completely dependent on these galleries. Absolutely. And I, I do want to answer a question you asked that I skipped by, and that was the oh, tracking sure. of, of inventory. Oh, yeah. So so every sale from every gallery I include, I include on a spreadsheet. Uh-huh. It's actually a separate, a separate spreadsheet per gallery. And I, I've got histories of every sale there. And then I, each year then, well, as, as the months pass, that I'm recording that information also onto a, a, a master spreadsheet mm-hmm. where I have the, the name of the piece, the gallery, the date, and then, you know, the size and what it was. Was it a small canvas, a middle canvas, a big canvas, a big metal piece? Um, so that's how I'm able to track how those sales occurred. And that's huge. There's, there's a gallery that in, uh, in the Nashville, Tennessee area that they had sold something and they're like, no, I think, I think we're good. You know, we, we've got enough back inventory years. And I, you know, I said to them, well, you've sold, you know, five 24 by 36 canvases of that piece over the last year and a half. Like they're like, okay, yes, yeah, send us another one, please. <laughs> so it's, it's also, it, you know, at times I guess it's really kind of educating them on that. Yeah. But, but like you said, I mean, there was a couple things. One, I think with galleries, I try to have galleries in different locations because you don't want to just rely on one gallery mm-hmm. or one region because that that region could you get you know a, a tornado could come through and there goes your business mm. but also you know with with collectors out there how do you connect with them and i ended up doing a newsletter and i've been doing that for a long time mm-hmm. and it's and it's a monthly newsletter and within that newsletter then i'm showing them the latest images. I try to tell a story behind the newsletter and why those, why I took those images, and that whole story behind story that. And that again. That's yep, and that's really helped keep them connected to me. Yeah, that is really cool. You know, so we have this amplify and automate. Do you use any specific software or anything for your newsletter that you love that you just think is you'd refer or? Or do you use like MailChimp or? I, I end up I ended up using Constant Contact. Okay. Um, at the time at the time I chose them, I thought they were the best. I'm sure there's others that are equal to them, if not better. But but they've done everything I've wanted them to do. Uh, it's easy yeah. to work with. Uh, the stats that they give me are great, so I've I've just continued to use them, and it's it's very helpful. Oh, the other thing I did I I can't do this in most of the galleries. But in the in the Asheville Gallery, uh, they actually allow you to put out a lot of your marking material. Hmm. So I also there then have a, a guest book where they can put their name and their email address and comments. Oh yeah, so guest book actually, is really good. Th- that's done huge. And like I said, most galleries aren't going to let you do a guest book, but with this one, you're able to, and that that's huge. I mean, that getting the, tracking those email addresses is just yeah, you know, like gold, like gold in the bank. Yeah. Now, do any of the galleries provide you with um, sales information when they sell stuff to their customers or they won't do that? I don't. There's there's a couple of them that I actually know the customer that, that they marketed to or sold to. Mm-hmm. Um, I would never use that information. But right. each month they they send you the list of what's sold. And sometimes mm-hmm. it includes the name of the person that, that bought it. Mm-hmm. Two galleries... Two galleries, in specific, you know, specifically, I can think of that I'm in constant contact because because the sales volume is enough that 
I need to know what's selling there. So the one I restock weekly because you, you, wow. you've got to know what's happening so that you know, so a piece that's really, really popular, I don't want to sell the, the one that's there and then not be able to replace it. So like right. one of the goats is, is called LOL for laughing out loud. Yeah. Um, and I'll, I think I have three or four canvases scattered around and then probably three or four prints kind of scattered through a print rack. Mm-hmm. There's one, a couple train images that sell really well. So I, I, I need to keep an eye on that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I tracked, I think it was November. I tracked it that because, see, some of the galleries, you don't get the information until the middle of the next month or maybe the 20th of the next month. Mm-hmm. And by then, you've already lost 20 days of potential sales. And, and I went back in November at this gallery in Asheville and tracked how many pieces sold a second time. So then I knew the, the value of knowing that information. I tracked it was $1,500 of, of sales I wouldn't have had oh, wow. from that gallery just in the pieces that were doubles. So, so you contact them. You have to stay on top of them. I do. And that, that gallery, a lot of times, it, it depends who's working. A lot of times on a Sunday, they'll shoot you out information from the week. Mm-hmm. But if not, I, I will contact them. And there's other couple galleries that I'll do that with um, where I'm just checking with them mid-month. Because if that piece, if the popular piece is gone, you can't sell it the rest of the month. So you try and touch base with your galleries at least at the beginning of the month or before the beginning of the month and mid-month and you restock them. Yeah, the ones that are, you know, amenable to that, um, you know, some just want to sell and then let you know at the end of the month. But I'd say most of the galleries mm-hmm. are very happy to have that communication because the more you sell, the better they do. Yeah. Well, I'm sure they're really, really happy for the professionalism. And the one thing, too, just uh, we were talking about, you know, knowing the names of, of people that, you know, have, have bought from you. The one thing I do also, because I have the website um, and people buy from the website, mm-hmm. if if you know, on that piece that they buy, if they happen to say, you know, hey, I saw your, I saw your piece at you know the Copper Fox Gallery in Franklin, Tennessee, so I, I couldn't get it at the time. You know, I'm gonna, I wanted to get it now, and that's fine. I actually send a commission check to the gallery. Oh wow, nice. Now there's there's two things. One, to me, it's the right thing to do. There's times it's hard to do, especially on a large piece. So it's hard <laughs> to write right. a $200 check to them. But the thing is, what happens is that if, let's say they, you know, artist cancels a show and they need somebody to quickly fill in, they need a quick piece for a public, you know, for an advertisement, they're mm-hmm. going to call you because you're the one that's been helping them. Yeah. People want to work with people that are helpful and professional and efficient. Absolutely. Well, you know, that kind of brings us to licensing because licensing is really about a partnership, licensing and contracts. Contracts are so important. And I think artists are sometimes scared of contracts. They think that they're going to get taken advantage of, that the contract is there to get one over on them or something like that. Whereas really contracts are about protecting both parties. They're there to protect the artist as well as the gallery or or the manufacturer or whatever. What licenses and contracts and terminology do you recommend people know and understand and do you keep on hand? I'd say most of the galleries I'm with have contracts. Uh, they don't all. Um, you know, most of those are just kind of a handshake. But there's there's kind of an advantage, I think, w- with a contract with a gallery that have them because they'll lay out, you know, this is the commission percentage you're going to be paying. This is when we write the check to you. Um, some will include that if if you um, happen to sell a piece that was seen in our gallery, a lot of times they'll say, well, the, you know, the percentage is less. I mean, I don't when I I was saying, but I sent a check to the gallery. I sent it to them for the full commission. Well, but some will nice. actually lay that out, that if somebody, you know, wants to buy 10 pieces from you, they contact you later, they're asking for a smaller commission. Hmm. So I, I think the contrast can be very helpful. And it's just really making sure, because some of them are going to have that, that it's going to be an exclusive contract. So you really want to look at that. Oh, yeah. Exclusivity. And, and I, under, I understand why. Um, absolutely. 
and you want to you do want to look at your you know the what you're committing to is it is it you know the first you're committing to six months or three months and then it's month to month you know if things aren't going well how how easily can you get out of it or they get out of it so you just want to look at all that you know it's mostly not really scary stuff but it just kind of lays out obligations on both sides from yeah. the licensing standpoint I don't license much other than I've I've licensed pieces for magazines. Oh yeah. Board reports, that kind of stuff. There there was one like a magazine that wanted to do a sh- uh, uh, focus on Jekyll Island. Mm. Georgia and I had images from Jekyll Island. Another one was in Cumberland Island. One let what was funny, one actually wanted me to photograph people which I don't do, but it but because they had seen my art, they wanted me to photograph these three people in front of a uh, covered bridge in uh, kind of like middle North Carolina. And I thought, yeah. what the heck? I agreed to it and did it. And it paid <laughs> pretty well. It was kind of fun to do something different. Yeah. Um, I was contacted by a um, a company that produces veterinary supplies. Oh. Um, and they were, they were potentially looking at licensing one of my images that I made out in Oregon of a barn. And they were, they were an Oregon based company. So we were kind okay. of going back and forth on. The potential use of that, and I was I was game for that, but I've yeah been like the goats in in a sense would be well it'd be a natural thing to sell the goats. On the other hand, I'm just not sure if I want to diminish what I'm doing. Mm, and licensing yeah. those goats could be a huge plus, or it could be a negative. I just at this point, I'm still happy just to sell them as as through the galleries. They'd be a cute calendar. Yeah, yeah, and I could probably even do my own calendar if I wanted to, but. Yeah. It, it's kind of one of those things. It's just you look at, it's, it's like you know, people want me to make cards. And I just look at it and go, you know, I can make a dollar a card. Mm-hmm. And is it worth Is it worth it? You know, the calendars, I can see some value to it. Just right. like people would be saying your, your stuff every, you know, every month. Right. Yeah, I can see the value of that. I think that's one of those things that you have to weigh and and kind of look at almost in a spreadsheet, really. and. Mm-hmm. You know, if you can hand off some of the work to a manufacturer and they can do it at scale and they're going to do the distribution and the marketing and so forth and so on, well, maybe it would be worth it, but maybe not. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 You know, we talked about or we mentioned the word exclusivity. We should talk about that for a quick second. I mean, the term means that somebody wants to use your image or your artwork and only them. And do any of your galleries ever ask that you only show certain pieces at their gallery that they have exclusivity of, you know, goat LOL at their gallery or does that ever come up? No, they never have. And I never would. So it's just, and it's just, I I approach it differently too, because I know that there's the discussion of whether something should be an open edition or something should be a limited edition. Yeah. And I, I'd chosen... I had always done limited editions, and then in 2008, I had read an article by a gentleman by the name of Barney Davey mm-hmm. talking about, in his opinion, he thought that open editions made more sense just because if something took off and you could only sell 10 of them, that you'd regret that. Yeah. So I actually, I actually switched. So I switched from limited editions to open editions, and what's really funny is, you know, um, uh, several of those goats, I'd have, I'd have been like shooting myself if they right. were limited editions because it's just they're, you know. I think I've read that article. I read a guy that said basically, well, you know, how many can I really print in my lifetime? Can I print 100? Can I print 500? Can I print 5,000? No, I can't print these really high numbers. Why not just do open edition and make as much money as you can off of your work? It's your work. Yep, you and, and Barney. Right? I mean, Barney's interesting. He he did the original initial article on that, then he did a follow up article a few years uh-huh. later, and he really gives both sides. And he Does lists he? Art, you know, artists that have done the limited editions and have done extremely well, and then he also shows people that have done the open editions and have done well. And it's it's probably just dependent upon the artist. Yeah. Um, but you know, I I was happy that I listened to him when when these goats <laughs> did well. Yeah, you know, how do you indicate that? So limited edition is where you put normally in like the lower left-hand corner, almost like a fraction, one over 50 or one over 500. And you're basically promising, I'm only going to print 500 of these. How do you, do you just not even mention it? Do you just 
sign the print and just be done with it? Or how do you do your open edition prints? And, you know, it's really funny, too, because I thought it might hurt my sales. Yeah. And I've heard that. another thing that I thought would hurt is I initially was matting them, you know, put them on mat board, matted them, and then put them in a sleeve. Yeah. So there's there's two things there. So you've got that matted piece, and then you've got the, the limited edition part of it. Yeah. And I got away from the mats pretty early on because it, it seemed like people were saying, but that does that's not the matte color I want. I was yeah, I tell them, well, you can just throw the mat away. Like, no, I can't do that. That's so expensive. I ended up Yes. So I ended up printing the prints with a white border around them so it has the feel of a mat. Uh-huh. And then you know, sliding that into the sleeve on mat board. Really? On the so limited you just edition. Use a mat yeah. board backer. And then yep. use like a one inch frame, just leaving like one or one and a half inches all around the print. Whatever the size is. So if if I'm printing, let's say, you know, a, a 10 by 10 on a 11 by 14 piece of paper, I center it. Okay. Or it could be an 11 by 14 on a 16 by 20 paper. I just center it. So it just happens okay. to be whatever's white is, is, is the white area that it gets. But it yeah. actually looks like it's matted. It yeah. does. And then you sign it? Or not at I all. Sign it on the, I, I sign it on the front. Okay. I know that's a that's a big thing that goes back and forth in the world. But the thing no, is I that I sign my work. Yeah, and but there's this huge argument over you should always you should always put it on the back. You should like no. I mean no. people because I've I've seen people's art hanging in a in a you know a coffee shop somewhere. I'm like, I wonder who did that. There's no signature. I'm like, no, sign the thing. No, no. Maria Brophy um, was on the podcast and her husband, Drew Brophy, is a big surfboard artist. He's oh, doing, yes, yeah. you know him, real mm-hmm. colorful illustration. And he always signed his surfboards. And he started doing that way before that was cool. He was signing his surfboards when he worked for a company and he was painting them just kind of, you know, as piecemeal. And um, now he's collected and people will call her up and say, is this a Drew Brophy surfboard? And she says, is it signed? And she said, and the reason he got so much work from that was because of his signature, because people saw his That's signature. Neat. So it's, I think it's very important that you always sign your work. And plus, it, it's copyright. Yes. Yep. But so. I'm telling you, it, I just ran into a photographer the other day, that, and she's seriously one of the best photographers I've ever seen. Really? Uh, I think she's finally starting to realize she is, because she doesn't think she is, but she's amazing. Mm. And she's now starting to show in galleries and she did a gallery show and there's not wasn't one piece that was signed on the front. And I, so uh. I was talking to the gallery and like, you know, please encourage her to sign on the front. Please, 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 please. Yeah. And but it's kind of one of those things where she's kind of bashful about it and like, you know, I don't know. I don't yeah, but no, sign it on the front. Sign it. It's not bragging. It's your artwork. <laughs> Well, and again, like I said, it's it's marketing too. I mean, it's, yeah, it's I, mean, I think it, it, it sets it above, but it's also marketing. If somebody sees that and they see your yes. name, well, then they, they can find you somewhere. You know, really funny. You just gave me a flashback because when I was 18 and 19 and 20 and in art school, I refused to sign my work because I thought it was braggadocious or something. And my best friend was like, just sign it. And, you know, pretty much shoved it under my face and was like, sign this piece. I want it. Sign it. And, you know, made me through just sheer (laughs) force of will (laughs) sign it. So, uh, yeah, I think a lot of artists have that. So I tell you all out there, sign your work. Be proud. It's fine. Absolutely. It's not bragging. You made it. I did want to drop back just if I could. Yeah. Just a little thing on galleries. Mm -hmm. When I moved here, though, I had planned to use galleries. Um, I really thought I was going to do art shows. And, you know, I used to, there was some fantastic art shows in the Harrisburg, Pennsylvania area. They, the Gretna, Mount Gretna art show was amazing. Oh, yeah. And there was one along the river. And, yeah. And I just didn't do that. I actually, actually bought the booth, did a couple indoor shows. Because mm-hmm. I knew people in the, in the industry that that's what they did. They just did these art shows and did well. Yeah. Um, I just, I discovered a couple things. One, they're a lot of work. Uh, yeah. You got to go every weekend, right? Yeah, and then the outdoor shows are, you know, if you get bad weather, it's bad. Mm. Photographs in sleeves, if the sun hits them, they they sweat um, oh. and ruin them. They so stick to the I plastic. Like, 
yeah, so I was like, well, I'm going to back away from that idea and, and concentrate on galleries. Now, uh-huh. what's interesting about that, it really, to me, it really came into focus. I guess it was a year and a half ago because I had, I had a torn rotator cuff, Oof. had surgery. Eesh. So I, I wasn't even you know able to drive for three or four weeks while I'm laying there, you know, in my chair and, and try to rehab, galleries are selling my work. Nice. I'm on vacation. Galleries are selling my work. So and you know, you're I not trying approaching- to set up some booth with a busted arm and, oh yeah. I mean, uh, to me, every time, you know, my wife and I are away and I'm getting, you know, I'll get a, sometimes I'll get a question from a gallery about a piece and can I get that? I'm like, Oh my gosh, I'm sitting here, I'm away from home and my work is selling. I mean, it's just huge. That's fantastic. And it, and it took a while to build up, you know, really good galleries. And I, you know, had dropped some that really weren't the proper gallery and found the right galleries. And, you know, it took time to build that. But um, man, I, I can't tell you the feeling of freedom that gives you that you're not, you know, you're not there standing there having to man the booth. Yeah. Someone else is doing it for you. It's huge. Yeah. So, you know, that really brings us to success. Can you summarize? You've given <laughs> you've given us so much information. Um, I really think some of the things you've said about what it takes to be successful, finding the right gallery, foot traffic. What are your measurements of success for you? How do you set your goals and how do you track those goals? And what does success look like for you? Oh, gosh, that's a really good question. <laughs> I think it needs answered. I ask it of everyone because it's all different. Everybody answers this question really differently. And I should have been prepared to answer this question because I've listened <laughs> to your, your podcast. <laughs> I think there's a, probably a couple ways of looking at it. I mean, for me, before I got into my first gallery, I would think to myself, if I could, I mean, if I could just sell a piece of art, I just think that'd be the coolest thing ever. Yeah. And, I know and that that's feeling. that's still with me. I mean, I yeah. to me, the fact that people connect to the images I'm making and decide to bring them into their home is just just an incredible feeling. I mean, to me, that's that's a piece of success. It mm-hmm. is just it just feels so good that people are struck by something that you've done and want it to be part of their life. Mm. The other part is, you know, making enough income off of that that you, you know, you're comfortable or you feel it's worth the effort. I mean, it, it's got to be worth the effort that you're putting it. into it. Yes, it has to. And that's probably, you know, why some of the galleries that, you know, the, the sales just weren't high enough to be willing to commit to continue to work with them. And, and a lot of that happened before I really understood the whole the whole tourism, the whole foot traffic in front, traffic in front of the gallery. It was more then than now, but uh, just no real quick on, on something. Now. Well, you know, no, that's no, that's very Sorry. true. I, I, I haven't posted it, but one of the galleries, because there are a lot oh, of them, dear. Well, probably almost, almost all of them are closed that I'm in right now. Hopefully they'll be back yeah. in April, but yeah. But what's interesting is the one closed down. I'm trying to think it was, I think it was Saturday at five. Uh-huh. And then they took a picture as they were leaving. I'm like, oh my gosh, it's an empty gallery. I keep wanting to post that, but I don't, I don't like to also post on Facebook or Instagram like negative stuff. But part of me, at some point, I'm going to say, I can't wait to see people in this space again. You know, just. Yeah, I can't wait to get out again. Personally, we've been holed up in our house for, I don't know, seven or eight days. I can't wait to get out. We had to cancel a trip to Florida and here and there and everywhere. Yeah, I can't wait for life to go back to normal. And what's funny is I didn't I didn't know what would happen with website sales because I, I've actually seen the number of posts on like an Instagram diminish tremendous diminished tremendously. So people aren't as focused on that world right now. And I honestly wasn't sure what would happen with website sales, but I've gotten three sales so far this week, and some are decent. I mean, it's not a ton, but you right. know that's good. And I think yeah. it's all that effort prior, you know, getting your name out there, doing anything mm-hmm. you can to get people knowing who you are and get your website out there and your newsletter. And, yeah. And having well, a me niche, again, having a yeah, presence. To me again, you know, people are buying stuff this week when the galleries are closed, you know, so it's like, 
that's good. incredible. That's a good thing. Yeah. Yeah, I thought people would be more online kind of with the the isolation, but it seems like people are, are focusing on their families and that's great. It's really good. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. Well, you know, I like to close out by asking about books. If there's any books or even blogs or podcasts, any reading, and it doesn't have to be necessarily about photography. But is there any book or reading material that you just think influenced you and you would highly recommend to anyone out there? There, There's a couple of blogs that I follow. Mm. And I will make sure I get you the links to them. Okay. But there's, there's, one, there's one that's, I think it's called Red Dot Blog. Mm. It's by a gallery owner out in Scottsdale, Arizona. Oh, okay. That's a big gallery area. And red dot would make sense. Red dot means something sold. Yes. And his gallery is called Xanadu Gallery. And he does this blog post, and it's to both gallery owners and to artists. So it's mm. kind of intriguing. Okay. So right now he's talking about what he's doing and how he's dealing with this coronavirus. Now, they're not shut down there, but okay. people aren't as willing to come to a crowded gallery opening. Yeah. And so he he did a, a Zoom podcast and he's but he he's talks about different techniques and things that people can can use to do that. Yeah. Another one I'm trying to I think it's called Fine Art Views. Again, mm. I'll get you the link. Cool. But there's probably Open five or below. six you know, five or six different people that consistently are posting things on there. And it's all, you know, art related. A lot of it's, you know, it could be an oil painter and different techniques to do stuff in the oil world. But most of it is regarding better ways to sell your art, different ways to look at your art, how to have, mm-hmm. how to be, you know, positive, a positive mental outlook and how to structure mm. your day. But they're really, really, really good. Fantastic. Um, for photographers, um, I, I had mentioned that I had gotten into photographing steam engines. Yeah. But there's a photographer, was a photographer by the name of O. Winston Link. Hmm. And he photographed the end of the steam era on the Norfolk and Western Railroad. And he did that in the late 1950s. Yeah. Uh, you know, the work, because it's from the 50s, is dated. But um, but the way he approached things and, and the amount of work that he put into making an image. Mm-hmm. I, I think it can be helpful to both photographers and, and other people as well. It's it's very intriguing. Just there was one one shot that he made. I think it took him four days to set up the shot. I mean, it's just like <laughs> you're like, well, it, it was actually. It, I guess it was winter time, and mm-hmm. there was a train that was going to be going parallel to the river across the mm-hmm. river from him, and there was yeah. a dam there. So he wanted the water flowing over the dam. He wanted the train on the other side, and he photographs at night, most of them. Huh. Well, if you think about it, back in the 50s, there weren't streetlights everywhere. Yeah. So if you wanted to even see a train, you had to light the train. Well, how do you light a train that's across the river from you? Right. So. They didn't really have these powerful spotlights, you know, handheld spotlights anymore. No. Before. So he threw a fishing line across the river. And then from that, he then got a rope, took drug the rope across, and then he drug steel cables across. So he had two steel cables, one for his feet, one from his hands. What? And in this icy weather, he drug flash units across the river, set them up on the other side, set flash units up on the water that was coming in over the waterfall, <laughs> and set all that up. So when the train went by, he could push the flash button. Fantastic. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> so it's just, it's just interesting to me. It's just, you know. It, it, no, it's fascinating. How he would approach his image and how he would try to, you know, his vision, let me say, and how he could get that vision into an image. Yeah. That is great. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for sharing all this information with us. It has been fantastic. I love the fact that you're that you've moved to Tennessee and you're making it happen and the work is is moving and it, it's just so awesome and it's so cool to talk to somebody that the gallery system is working for cuz sometimes we hear how this gallery system doesn't work, that it's broken, blah blah blah. So, I really think that it's neat to have all these perspectives. Thank you. And I was, I, I was glad I actually pursued that world. Well, that's it for the Artist Appeals. 
I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I've enjoyed recording it. I just love talking with all these artists and business people. It's phenomenal and I've learned so much. I hope you've learned something too. You can get more information. You can check out some of the links that we talked about in these podcasts at theartistappeals.com. That's the artist appeals a p p e a l s dot com thanks and have a good one